the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you Google demise of Detroit, Jarrell and I were just talking about this during the break. The photographs of the destruction of once was a great, proud, and glorious city is alarming. It is shocking. It is dismaying at so many levels. You know, the population of Detroit today is barely 702,000. At its peak, it was over a million, 900,000 strong. The number of vacant, dilapidated, empty buildings, the amount of erosion that has taken place to the heart of that city is startling. And oddly, as much as we look at Detroit and the demise of its architecture, it kind of sets up a visual picture of what's been going on in our nation's moral, familial, and spiritual infrastructure as well. You know, out here in California, we talk about how the West was won back in the 1800s. Now it seems as if so much of the West, collectively speaking, the Western world, is being lost. In fact, How the West Really Lost God is the title of a new book by best-selling author Mary Eberstadt. And Mary, thank you for taking time to be with us tonight. Mary, by the way, Senior Fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy, and um, we appreciate so much you taking a couple of moments to be with us. Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me. Boy, this this demise of what we used to know as our nation, and I think anybody who, who spends any time in God's Word and any time reading the newspaper uh, or watching the news has got to see it all around us as much as we've seen the evidence of the horrific decay of what once was a, a great and proud city called Detroit. A lot of that's going on in the family and in, quite frankly, the church today in the West, too, isn't it? Well, it is. If you look at the news cycle just from the past couple of weeks and you see all of these horror stories, that's just the latest example of what I think speaks to a lot of people. A lot of people want to know, well, what, what happened to God? Uh, what happened to God-fearing people? And they are right to wonder that question, because if you look at statistics from Western Europe, for example, you see a sharp fall-off in uh, church attendance over the last few decades, In the United States, although it's more religious than Europe still, you see a rise in the number of people in their 20s who say that they are none of the above, no religious affiliation. So this idea of secularization or Christian decline, depending on how you want to put it, is real. Um, But the question is, what's causing it? Since the Enlightenment, we've had a secular answer to that question, and that is, well, you can expect Christianity to decline because... It's what Karl Marx called the opiate of the masses. It's a a superstitious bundle of beliefs that will go away as people get more rational and more educated. And this is what a lot of sophisticated people think, including now. But this storyline isn't right, Craig. It doesn't hold up when you put it against the data. It's not the case that the better educated you are, the less likely you are to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, in the United States, Uh, There's data that shows the opposite, that 
as, as you go up the socioeconomic ladder, people are more likely to believe in God and to go to church. The same was true in Victorian London. That's another example I cite in the book. So it's not the case that education alone drives out God. And same with prosperity. It's not prosperity alone that drives out God. There are plenty of prosperous Christians all over the world. So something else is going on in Western secularization, and that's what I'm trying to get at in the book, because I think the answer amounts to two words, the family. Well, and let's talk about that, because there is sort of this chicken or egg, which came first scenario set up here. I mean, we certainly recognize that there has been a significant decline in, in faith, specifically Christianity uh, in the West. And I think logically we could conclude that as people are less inclined to follow a, a strict belief system that will dictate or somehow lend direction to their behavior concerning things such as uh, children outside of marriage, uh, divorce, uh, abortion, things of this sort, that there's certainly a a strong connection there. Uh, Then, too, I think we could also argue that there is a, a sense of support between uh, the family and how that the, as the family falls apart, we're less inclined to go to church. We're not working mm-hmm. together in, in kind of that harmonious unit anymore that we're no longer then as actively participating in the church. So I guess it kind of comes down to which comes first. Does religious decline lead to the disintegration of the family? Does family decline lead to religious disintegration or is it a bit of both? Well, I think it's both, but the point is that the conventional way of looking at this is to say, well, first comes religious decline as people sort of sit in the corner one by one and decide that they have a problem with this part of Scripture or that part or that it's not reasonable to believe in the Bible, and then comes the decline of the family. This is how conventional sociologists tell the story. But my point is there's something else going on here, which is that family decline encourages religious decline. And let let me just give you a few examples of what I mean by that, because there are things that everybody can understand. So we live in a time when many millions of households don't have a dad in the home, for example. We've seen this incredible rise in um, fatherless households. Now, if you're the child of a household like that, I think you have to make an extra conceptual leap to understand this very basic Christian idea of God as a benevolent, loving Father. Mm -hmm. Because if you've never known a benevolent, loving Father, that's an idea that's foreign to you. So that's just one example of how the way we live now in fractured and atomistic families can put an extra barrier in between an individual and religious belief. None of that is to say that folks from broken homes can't become, you know, perfectly religious people, but it is to say we have new impediments to that leap that didn't used to exist. So similarly, the Christian story is saturated with family imagery and family ideas uh, from the get-go. I mean, this is a religion that starts with the, uh, the miraculous birth of a baby. We live in a world with falling birth rates and smaller families, Many people grow to adulthood without ever having held a baby or taken care of a baby. Don't you think that makes it a little bit more uh, exotic or foreign to think that you could have this religious story that begins with a baby? So these are just some examples of what in the book I refer to as the phenomenon that family illiteracy breeds religious illiteracy. So this is a two-way street. It's not just that religious decline leads to family decline. It's also that 
not living in extended natural families the way people have throughout history up until very recently puts new barriers in the way of religious belief. Well, most certainly so. I mean, you think, for example, about the redefining of the family unit these days, that, for example, where uh, certainly when I was growing up, uh, mom and dad took you to church. We went together as a family and participated as a family in, in uh, you know, religious services and so forth. I, I think you could argue today that, well, a lot of parents as a single parent would say, I don't have time for that. You know, I, I'm working two jobs and i got to raise five or six kids, whatever the number might be. And so uh, spending copious amount of times at church is oftentimes the, the furthest thing on their mind. So is it any wonder that they're, number one, not seeing the model the way God designed it. Number two, there's not a motivation that would set up the mentoring necessary that would do provide the role model to understand, hey, there's benefits to all of this. And when I grow up and someday have a family of my own, I wish to continue these self-same traditions. So is it any wonder that I think there's a very strong connectivity, as you're suggesting? Yes, and continuing those traditions is a big part of it. This is something else I talk about in the book. You know, a lot of people uh, say, well, it's not that God has disappeared from Western society. It's that people have gotten more spiritual. They're into different kinds of practices, New Age practices, etc., uh, so they're still spiritual, they're still sort of religious. And I'm not saying they aren't, but what I am observing is that if you read the studies, you see that those are not people who pass down their faith to their children. Those kinds of things don't get transmitted through the generations, and part of the reason is that, for whatever reason, it is traditionally religious people who tend to have children in this country, and not just in this country, but across uh, Europe and Israel and uh, pretty much every place that it's been studied. For whatever reason, secular people have no families or small families. So what you see over time is that what gets passed down through families and families of size is traditional religion and not these variations. So non-traditional households, uh, you know, might go to church and regard themselves as Christians, but they're not likely to pass on the traditions of Christianity to their children and their grandchildren. And well, that's a really I, interesting phenomenon. And, and the other thing, too, we can make an interesting uh, contrast and comparison here with the rise of the spread of Islam around the world and seeing that largely most of that is happening, certainly not because of their effective evangelism tools, but rather because of the birth rate and the emphasis on the family, the family unit, and uh, procreating at large levels in order to increase the size and the influence and therefore the impact of Islam across the world. So they understand this. And this is something that for a long time, certainly in, in Western Europe, uh, with uh, emphasis on procreation uh, within the church, helped grow the church's numbers as well. We're taking a look at a fascinating new book called How the West Really Lost God, Mary Eberstadt, the best-selling author, is with us today. Uh, the new book, by the way, published by Templeton Press, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through um, the usual suspects like Amazon.com. Mary, by the way, is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and we're going to come back to more of this question as we talk about many of the things that have happened to undermine Christianity in the West and, most importantly, wrestles through the question, is there anything we can do to stop this decline, or is this something that's simply inevitable as much as we might anticipate it looking at the decline of what was happening to the Roman Empire, that eventually this is just the way things are going to be, do you think? 
Come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mary Eberstadt is with us tonight. We are talking about her new book, How the West Really Lost God. And, you know, we're seeing this strong connection with a lot of things, too, in terms of just the shift in our thinking, aren't we, Mary? I mean, in, in terms of the, the, the rise of things like moral relativism, secular humanism, things of this sort which, sort, which always kind of tend to take all of the kind of one by one dismantling the foundations of our faith, don't they? Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that the new atheists occupied the public square for a while, and between them and what's been going on uh, in, in this administration, you could argue that um, Christians have been taking something of a rhetorical beating out there. Um, but that does not mean that all hope is lost, and that's actually part of why I wrote the book, because I think there are a lot of things going on that point the way to a religious and with it a family revival down the road. How do we go about affecting that? I mean, as much as we recognize that there is a significant atrophy going on of not only the spiritual strength of America, but the West in general, and I think it's fair to include Europe in this, uh, and then, too, the, the demise of the American family. We mentioned here at the start of our conversation, Mary, uh, the, such things as the high rate of abortion, divorce in our country. Single parents, you know that 70% of the births in the city of Detroit today are all to unwedded mothers. So looking at this, what can we do to help stem the tide or reverse this slow, apparent march toward the eventual destruction of Western society and civilization? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons, Craig, why I'm an optimist about this. Um, First of all, in the book, the first thing I try to do is get rid of this idea that I think is the most prevalent idea uh, describing religious decline, this Enlightenment idea that Christianity's eventual demise is inevitable, that as people get smarter and richer, they will decide that they can jettison this thing. This is not what has happened. The data don't show it. The timeline doesn't show it. So it's really important to understand, first of all, that the idea of inevitable decline has been contradicted by the facts. That in itself is grounds for optimism, I think. The second thing I think is really interesting is the relationship between Christian decline and the welfare states of the West. For many decades now, we've had these gigantic welfare states telling us that they can be counted upon to act as family substitutes. If you remember the the Julia video that was part of the re-election campaign of President Obama, that one about the young woman who is helped from cradle to grave by the welfare state, from daycare to old age. That's an example of what I'm talking about. This promise has been out there, but if we look at what the welfare states of the West uh, are doing now, if we even read the financial pages as, as laymen and laywomen, we see that these states are in incredible financial trouble. We see that the shrinking of the family and the fracturing of the family has put incredible burdens on the welfare state, picking up the pieces and bankrolling the fractured families of the West. And we see that down the road they are unsustainable because there are not enough taxpayers to go around. It's really as simple as that. It's more obvious in Western Europe than in America quite yet, but we are headed in the same direction just as we were headed in the same direction with 
rates of family fracture and rates of secularization. So the point is, when the welfare states of the West are revealed to be incapable of keeping the promises that they have made, people are going to do what people always do in times of adversity. They go home. They go to church. They look for those elemental, organic connections of what's nearest to them. We saw this after 9-11, when many millions of people who had not been in church in a long time suddenly showed up, and it was standing room only in the churches for uh, weeks and months after that event. I'm sure you remember that, too, because it was countrywide. Of course. That's an example of how real shocks to the societal system have a way of putting people back in touch with their roots. And for that reason, I think you can argue that down the road, out of the the uh, curtailing of the welfare state or a more realistic understanding of the welfare state, you can actually see the seeds of family and religious revival. Sadly, though, a lot of this comes on the heels, as you suggest, when we've gone through some sort of a major crisis that kind of pulls us together, causes us to reevaluate our priorities, rethink the direction of our lives. It happened, uh, certainly, Sandy Hook, it happened after 9-11. So at the end of the day, is it maybe things such as the current moral, political, economic crisis that, in a sense, might sadly create the groundwork for spiritual revival in the West? Yes, but I don't think it has to be catastrophic necessarily. Um, One of the things I I note with interest is that in 2008, during the uh, economic crash then, a couple of interesting things happened that weren't much talked about, but one was the, the return of adult children to the homes of their parents because they couldn't afford to move out on their own. To the extent that this was noticed, people thought it was a bad thing. Um, you know, that they should have had the money somehow to move out on their own. But I see a silver lining in that, which is the unintentional reinvigoration of the extended family. And I always talk about extended family, not nuclear family. Nuclear family is, a, I think, too constricting a term. I think it holds people to too, too strict a standard. But the extended family, the idea of a family that goes through the generations and is connected in all kinds of different ways... I think we did see the reinvigoration of that kind of family on account of the downturn in 2008. Also in 2008, the divorce rate dropped. Now, that's a really interesting thing. And divorce lawyers themselves said that they thought it dropped because adversity made people think twice about uh, something that's expensive and difficult like divorce. So... I do think also that over time people are rational creatures, that the the toll, the various kinds of tolls of the ways that we live now that are so different from the way our ancestors lived uh, will be taken account of, and that people of the future will have a more expansive understanding and a more appreciative understanding, perhaps, of the benefits of the extended family than we have today. You know, so I see all kinds of grounds for hope out there. It's always sad, though, when we have to um, realize what we have once we come close to losing it. Uh, but maybe, as you suggest, Mary, hopefully, as we kind of get the clarion call out there, the word of warning, call the attention of folks, that those that have an ear to hear, that can hear what the Lord is saying to his church, uh, can rise up and respond and help stem the tide. 
It's a fascinating read and one I would recommend, How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt is its author and our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, the book is published by Templeton, and you can get it online, uh, certainly through Amazon.com. Also, Mary has a website, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. It's also the title of the book. Easy to remember, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. And it is... Uh, it's an important indictment, and I think one that we need to take to heart quite seriously. Our thanks to uh, Mary Eberstadt for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. For those who have loved ones currently in the hospital, who have perhaps lost a loved one, it raises many of the why God questions. Why does God allow things to happen like this? And when we're in these kinds of times, whether we're talking about the tragedy of what unfolded yesterday in Boston, to the loss of a child, to maybe just the day-to-day challenges that we face in life, oftentimes we, we feel as if we're kind of groping about and we're, we're wondering in the middle of the darkness of our experience, how do we find God? Coincidentally, a new title of a book called called Finding God in the Dark, and it's co-written by my next guest, Ted Gluck. Ted, of course, has been on the program previously. We talked to him uh, some months ago regarding his best-selling book, Dallas and the Spitfire. Back again to join us today, and Ted, it's always great to have you on the show. Hey, Craig, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Boy, the timing of our conversation today in the wake of the tragedy of Boston yesterday, again, it just touches on so many levels emotionally and and spiritually. Kind of give me your overall sense, um, particularly in the spirit in which uh, you wrote this book along with Ronnie Martin. Um, We're in these moments, be it the tragedy of yesterday to simply maybe losing a job, losing a loved one. We grapple with the sense of where God, why God? Yeah, we really do. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. These are these are existential questions. You know, these are questions that that strike to the core of our existence, and um, they really strike to the core of how it is that we think about God. And um, you know, as as I prepared for the show tonight, I, I knew you were going to ask me about this, and I was I was talking it over and, and praying about it with my wife, and I was reminded of the verse in First Thessalonians that says. You know, as Christians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, and you know, but we still grieve. You know, and, and whether you're intimately involved in a situation like this, or or whether you're just kind of observing it from the outside, I mean, you're grieved. And I'm reminded of the the doctrine of total human depravity. You know, the idea that that we're all sinners in this world with sick hearts, and that there's no hope for us, and there's there's nothing good apart from Christ. And I think, you know, what what you take from this events. I mean, you watch the media and you hear things like, you know, we're going to do everything we can. And, you know, there's all kinds of kind of governmental slash military finagling going on. And, and on one hand, you, you root for that and you're, you're hopeful that something will be done. But, you know, as Christians, we know that um, apart from the cross and apart from Christ, you know, there's really, there's not a good answer. You know, there's not a great hopeful thing that, that Obama or anyone else can say to people to really make them feel better. So, you know, I think for us, maybe the takeaway is an opportunity to, to recognize the sin in our own hearts. And, you know, much of my book deals with that, you know, this idea that, you know, it wasn't until I really humbled myself and threw myself at the foot of the cross that I had any joy and any peace in this life. And I think we, 
we're reminded that we don't find our joy and peace in circumstances or situations. You know, it, it isn't God's job to, to make everything perfect for us, um, uh, but He does find us, He does seek us out, and He does give us the opportunity to, to humble ourselves and, and find joy and peace in Him. You know, what you say, I know, even with my listeners eavesdropping on this conversation right now, we, we, we resonate with what you say. We, we certainly readily give a mental assent to your observations, and yet oftentimes isn't there that disconnect that we experience, meaning that we understand, for example, if we want to just kind of uh, coldly in a very calculated manner dissect what transpired yesterday, it is, you know, man's depravity, it is separation of God, from God by, by sin, it is our inclination to do wrong and evil and the influence of the enemy in our lives. We understand all of that, and we can certainly in many ways kind of pigeonhole or categorize the pain of yesterday into those categories. We give complete, total mental assent to those realities. And yet there's this disconnect where emotionally, though, we're still saying, but wait a minute, God, I mean, aren't you supposed to come in and kind of, you know, save the day? Uh, We look at this and say, well, you know, of all the people that died yesterday, uh, three all told, why did one of them have to be an eight-year-old boy? And suddenly now we're kind of emotionally uh, and spiritually wrestling with God over these things. Yeah, we are, you know, and I, I, I fully agree. And I think, you know, for those of us who, who grew up Christian or grew up in evangelical homes like I did, I mean, I think I, I spent a lot of years just intellectually assenting to things and not really feeling or experiencing them. And there's this, this strange tension in the Church where, you know, you're, you're clinging to truth, and you have biblical truth, but yet you, you still want to experience things. You want to feel comforted. And, you know, for me, uh, I think the Bible is full of, of, of examples of people who, you know, cling to, cling to Christ and cling to, cling to God in the midst of really horrible things that are happening to them. And on one level, you, you, you don't really maybe find comfort in their stories, but I, I find comfort in the idea that there's a model for how we can cling to the Lord in those times, how we can cry out to the Lord, how, you know, King David, who you know, the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but, but was also this horrible sinner. You know, he was a, an adulterer and a murderer, and he has the audacity and the, and the courage, really, to ask God for a clean heart. And then he asked God to restore his joy. And this is, you know, when people are pursuing him and, and chasing after him to take his life, you know, he even, he even clings to, to the Lord for joy in that. And, you know, as to how that comforts you know, someone who's who's grappling with the reality of yesterday. I don't know, but I'm but I'm glad it's there, and I'm glad, you know, the Bible gives us a, a model for how we're to do that. And I've I've found, I mean, my experience has been um, that there's really been no earthly comfort outside of that. And you know, sometimes we can't explain these things away. We can't, um, you know, God doesn't let us know immediately why it's happening. Um, but but that feeling of joy and peace, even in the midst of uh, of life's terrible storms. I mean, that's something that uh, experientially we can we can look to the Lord and just say thank you. There's and one thing though that tends to kind of complicate this. And after a brief time out, I want to kind of dig deeper. We we spoke of the the mental ascent to what we understand to be true from God's perspective, from God's word. Then there's kind of the emotional struggles that we go uh, go into where we we understand intellectually what's going on, and yet emotionally still there's that sense of disillusionment and fear and doubt and unbelief. The third aspect that kind of complicates this scenario is 
the big cover-up. And we'll talk about that when we come back after a brief timeout. Best-selling author Ted Kluck is with us today, a look at Finding God in the Dark. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our visit with best-selling author Ted Kluck. He, along with co-author Ronnie Martin, have written a new book called Finding God in the Dark. Now, we talked a bit about that sense of giving mental assent to what we know are the realities of what's going on in these kind of circumstances, Ted, and yet oftentimes uh, being just overwhelmed by emotional senses of, of doubt and fear and disillusionment. But then there's kind of the other third item that I think tends to complicate this, and you talk about it in the book. It's something that we evangelicals in particular seem to be very adept at, and that is um, kind of faking our way through pain, you know, painting on the smile and, and getting past the greeter at the door at church on Sunday or, you know, uh, giving the obligatory, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? When, in fact, we're really not. And I'm wondering if sometimes that sets up a barrier that really blocks us from the ability to deal with how we're feeling and kind of find the sort of uh, peace and relief that we seek. Yeah, I think it absolutely does, and I think, you know, I wrote about it in the book. I was absolutely guilty of that for so many years, you know. The issues were different for me in that, you know, our our hard times, our dark places, if you will, were infertility, um, a failed adoption, um, some vocation-related failures that I was experiencing, and instead of, you know, being humbled and clinging to the cross and those things, for a lot of years I just got more bitter, you know, more bitter, more cynical, um, but week after week, day after day, you know, Sunday after Sunday, I would go into church and, and, you know, I was, I was everybody's buddy and, and the back slapping lobby guy with a smile for everybody. But inside I was really dying, you know, and I was really struggling with, you know, how do I love a God who, uh, would put me through this quite frankly was, was my thought process. And, um, it was really tough, you know, and, and thankfully the, the same institution that was hard for me in that, the church. Um, it was tough to go to church, and it was tough to see everybody else, I thought, prospering, you know, while I was kind of circling the drain, I thought. But um, it was that same institution that ended up being, you know, such a help and such a comfort for me as the Holy Spirit uh, pursued me out of that. I guess the irony is that a lot of us are often going through this, whether it's the way in which a whole community suffers, such as in the wake of the Boston bombing, or individual families. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. As you point out in your case, it was an adoption that right on the cusp of, of everything coming together, um, your uh, your little Ukrainian daughter, who who was literally the the, the sister of, of one of your adopted boys, uh, the, mm-hmm. another couple stepped in and the law did what it did uh, thousands of miles away, and that whole adoption process fell apart. That created a great deal of pain in your life, and I guess maybe the issue oftentimes here is when we're going through pain or fear or doubt or disillusionment, uh, we want to keep up a happy face. You know, nobody typically posts on Facebook what a terrible day that they're having or what an awful meal that they had. They we all tend to kind of want to be uh, happy and, and, and sort of, you know, put on the dog, so to speak, and yet behind that mask oftentimes lurks an awful lot of pain. Yeah, that's so right, man. I, I think oftentimes we're our own best press agents. And, you know, from being in Christian media and Christian entertainment, as I am, you know, there, there is this often kind of creepy, you know, motivation to self-promote. And 
Um, I find I found myself doing a ton of that, you know. Uh, again, on Facebook, my Facebook persona was, you know, I was this happy, successful guy with a great family and, um, you know, all kinds of success and all kinds of exciting things happening. But, you know, for anybody who knew me then or, or anybody who was close to me then, you know, the opposite was really true. And um, it wasn't until, you know, I heard some convicting preaching. Um, it wasn't until I, you know, I went to some friends of mine in the church, uh, a pastor and an elder, and just said, look, I'm, I'm struggling here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really dying here. I'm really bitter, and uh, I need your help. You know, um, thank God, you know, for me that the Holy Spirit pursued me in that way and, uh, and, and kind of led me to do that, because I think even though the circumstances really haven't changed, you know, this book isn't one of those stories where, you know, we pray a couple of times and then we get rich and have a bunch of kids and everything starts going right for us. You know, the the circumstances are the same, essentially, um, but but Christ has given me a lot of joy and a lot of peace in the midst of that, so I'm thankful. What's the big takeaway? Um, as both you and Ronnie have shared a lot of personal pain in this book, what are you hoping to be the big takeaway for readers and for our listeners tonight? Yeah, you know what, I think a couple of things. Number one, we can feel so alone in our churches um, when we do struggle and when we are in dark places, and um, Ronnie and I hope that this book would kind of be the, the friend that we don't have in churches, you know, the, the person who's willing to be honest about their own struggles and their own sins and their own, you know, dark places. So hopefully it'll be a comfort to people on that level. But um, I think the other takeaway really is just a, a simple presentation of the gospel, you know, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and we acknowledge our sinful hearts and our brokenness, that He'll lift us up, you know, and He'll um, He'll redeem us and He'll give us peace and He'll give us you know, the, the clean hearts and the, and the joy of our salvation that David talks about in Psalm 51. And, you know, I think in, in different ways and in different struggles, um, Ronnie and I have both uh, experienced that, and we wanted to, you know, to write the book as a, really an outpouring of thanks to, uh, to a Lord who would, who would do that for us, you know, a couple of really sinful, screwed-up guys. We have a lot of observers right now who they themselves are asking questions who do not currently have a relationship with the Lord. And I know it's easy sometimes to come up with pat answers, but from a sincere standpoint, as as maybe people out there who are not believers are seeking answers and, and asking the why God questions as well, what, what do you tell these people in, in terms of how they can find God in the dark? I think keep asking and keep seeking. And, um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit will find you. You know, I, I think... You know, we serve a Lord who, who finds us and who pursues us and who loves us enough to, you know, to, to, to come after us at times. And, you know, I think if, if people are asking questions, that's a great sign. You know, I don't, think you, I don't think you get anywhere in this life without asking the hard questions. And, you know, again, you know, there's this, there's this weird tension in the Church where you're just so, sometimes you feel like you're supposed to smile and show up and um, everything will be great for you. But, you know, it really wasn't until... Ronnie and I started started asking those hard questions that um, that we got any peace and um, so I would say keep asking I would say you know search for truth I mean I think we're we live in a culture where um, it's very cool and it's very sexy to to be journeying and never arrive anywhere um, it's cool to be a seeker but not a, a a pursuer of truth but I would say you know seek hard after truth in scripture and uh, and see how the Lord reveals himself to you 
A look at finding God in the dark. Ted Kluck, along with Ronnie Martin, the authors of this new book. And the book, by the way, is re- recently published by, i got to get my cheaters on here, boy. Reaching that age, are you, Roberts? Uh, Bethany House Publishers, and you can find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it through Ted's website at tedkluck, K-L-U-C-K dot com. And our thanks again to Ted Kluck for visiting with us in this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.